It's great to be with our church family this Thanksgiving week, and uh, there's so many things that to be thankful for, and one of the things I'm most thankful for is just you and getting to be a part of what God's doing here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Trisha. I'm one of the pastors, along with my husband, Joe, who I think is out running errands, but um, <laughs> no, I'm sure he's doing something spiritual somewhere. But anyway, <laughs> we, we uh, oversee the schools, and uh, as I was praying about what I might share this morning, I was thinking about gratitude, and I thought, Maybe I should just share the thing I'm most grateful for, which is Jesus. And so I went to the Lord and asked him if, if that was kind of, you know, what, and I, and I felt like the Lord said, tell him our story. And it kind of reminded me of those wedding websites, you know, where you go and it says our story and it tells all about them. Well, that's kind of what I want to do this morning. But um, I want to say it's going to be a little different because there's details I don't want to forget. And sometimes the story gets a little emotional for me. So I'm going to be reading quite a bit. Uh, and I don't normally do that, but I'm calling this message just Jesus. And if I were to give you an overarching description of my journey with Jesus, it would come from the, the gospel written by the disciple who called himself the one Jesus loves, the gospel of John. So if you'll turn there, John chapter 1, we're going to read a few verses from that to begin with. John chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping down to verse 14... And the Word became flesh and dwelt among it, us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace." Let's pray. Jesus, we need you this morning to make yourself known. We need you to lift up your name in the way that you are worthy of being lifted up. We thank you that we can worship as we have, and you glorify yourself in it. But we ask you to come now and tell our story through me, Lord, in a way that can touch each heart here. In your name, amen. There's two uh, phrases in those passages that define my story. The first one is, I have seen his glory. And the second is, for from his fullness I have received grace upon grace. Uh, it begins in the year 1944 when a 15-year-old girl longing for some excitement that her small Colorado town didn't offer saved up her pennies until she had enough to secretly board a bus and go to the big city of New Orleans to visit her glamorous older sister, Naomi, who lived there. The girl's name was Elizabeth, 
or Betty, as many of you have come to know her here, my mom, who sits with me most Sundays here at the front. To her, Naomi's lifestyle offered everything her small life in Colorado didn't have. On Betty's 16th birthday, they went out to celebrate, and she met a man, a sailor, named Jim in a bar. And three weeks later, they got married. (laughs) He was ready to ship out, and he went out to do his part in World War II. He was shipped to the shores of Normandy, where they gathered the casualties to take home to grieving families. An ordeal my father avoided talking about all his life, but make no mistake, it marked his soul. When the war ended, these two teenagers, who really didn't know each other, had to make a life together. They moved to Northern California, they had two daughters, and you would not have known from their lifestyle that they had each come from families of faith. But on each side, there was a parent praying fervently for them. One day, a knock on the door, and they opened it to their neighbor, and he was a Baptist preacher. And because of his challenges and their desire to do right by these two little girls, they went back to church and eventually to their own relationship with Jesus. By the time Betty was 25, she had five children. I was number four. And it would be an understatement to say that our lives revolved around that Baptist church. We were there every Sunday morning for hours, every Sunday night for hours, every Wednesday night for hours, and all manner of other times in between. I think we have circa 1961 of us all dressed up for church there, the McCary family. (laughs) And then I have another one. Every Christmas, we did our own. Baptists didn't do Christmas Eve services. We did our own Christmas Eve service. And uh, there we are, some playing, some singing. And uh, we celebrated together, so our life revolved around our faith. It should come as no surprise then that when I was five, I walked down an aisle and gave my life to Jesus and was baptized. My memories of those years are very sweet, and one in particular stands with me. It was uh, every month we had what was called a hymn sing. How many of you have ever heard of a hymn sing? Uh, very few, you, and you're over 50 if you have. But uh, hymn sing was every, uh, every month on a Sunday night, we gathered without a preacher, and that was good news for kids because uh, we sat through all the services. And uh, the people got to pick their favorite hymn. Well, my favorite hymn as a five-year-old was a rather somber song that went something like this. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown Well, every month on hymn sing night I would wave my hand furiously for that song But hymn sings were supposed to be celebration nights And so that music director, once he knew that was what I was going to do He studiously avoided looking at me The summer of my 16th year, my dad and mom and my brothers, my sisters had moved out by then, and our dog piled into our station wagon and loaded everything that didn't fit in the moving van, and we came to San Diego. Until that day, I had really lived in one neighborhood my whole life, 
one set of friends, one church, one set of schools, one way of being in the world. And suddenly we were in this strange place, and this introvert was lonely and afraid, and I wrote a lot of dark poetry that I still have in a file somewhere. (laughs) That teenage misery continued until I met a boy, (laughs) a pastor's son who loved Jesus, who was kind and fun and determined to make me happy in San Diego, and he did. And as teenagers sometimes do, we fell in love. And for graduation, he gave me a diamond engagement ring. And I gave him luggage for a mission trip he was heading out on. Do you know how mission trips can totally turn your life upside down? He came home from that summer confused about his call, confused about what God wanted from him, and though he never said it, he wasn't sure about us anymore. To make a long story short, when fall came, we went away to college, the same college. We took all our classes together. We were in a band together. We were together every free moment, but it was clear something had changed, and the relationship limped to an end. So he took me home to San Diego. I was determined I could not live in that heartbreak, and I had to come home. My life had to be over, I was sure at that point. And uh, he went back to school, and my mom and dad both worked, and they realized pretty early on they had a basket case on their hands. So when they had to go to work the next day, they called my Aunt Naomi. Do you remember Naomi from New Orleans? Well, her reckless lifestyle had finally gotten to her over the years, and one day she had fallen down on her knees, and given her life to Jesus. Parents, don't stop praying for your children. (laughs) And she married a Messianic Jew, and they had just moved to San Diego. So I didn't know her very well, but she showed up that morning, and she did what any good aunt would do in such a dire situation. She took me shopping. (laughs) And after a morning of meandering the malls, we stopped at a little gas station downtown where gas was 22 cents a gallon. And, yeah. (laughs) And a nice young man not only put the gas in our car, but washed every single window all in the car. That's what they did back in the Stone Ages when I was a teenager. And as we stood there in the afternoon sun, she began to tell me about some of her own heartbreaks in life. And then she said the strangest thing. She said, Tricia, you just need to fall in love with Jesus. And I was taken aback. I was stunned. I knew a lot about Jesus, but I never heard anything about falling in love with him. Baptists didn't talk that way. In fact, nobody did back in those days. I had no idea what that might mean, but I felt the whisper of the wind blowing across my soul, and I knew something inside was changing, and it was going to rock my world. I just didn't know how long it was going to take. How do you fall in love with Jesus? My Aunt Naomi plied me with books by saints of old, and I would read their stories of mystery and wonder And I would imagine myself having those things happen to me, but it was kind of like imagining myself as Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty in the fairy tales of my childhood. 
The thing is, I knew how to work for Jesus. By then, I'd logged some 10,000 hours in the Baptist church. And let me tell you, Baptists know how to work hard for Jesus. And in case you didn't know it, there are some Baptist roots here at All People's Church. So, uh, But we, uh, we sang hymns about it. We sang, we'll work till Jesus comes. We sang, work for the night is coming. And we measured our diligence weekly on offering envelopes that we had to fill out. I found one on Google, and they are still printing these things. Look at that. You get attendance, 20%. If you're on time, you get 10%. If you brought your Bible, 10%. I love this one. If you prepared your lesson, 30%. And I was just reading this in the first service, and it occurred to me, some of you in leadership school are thinking, that's where they get that. Right, Adrian? (laughs) We measured our diligence weekly. So you add to that that I am an Enneagram 3, And let's just say I was a very dedicated Christian my entire life. Uh, We had gone on. I met Joe. Love is lovelier the second time around. And we got married. We shared a passion for Jesus. And uh, we started planting churches. We planted a, a church in an Eskimo village with 100 Eskimos and 200 dogs. And then we went to Texas and planted churches, house churches in poor neighborhoods. And then we came to San Diego and planted a church that we were at for 38 years before God brought us here. And as the years went by, of course I came to love Jesus. Who wouldn't? I mean, I taught, led worship. I taught classes. I I even wrote books about Jesus. But somewhere in the back of my mind, those words of Aunt Naomi's, fall in love with Jesus, haunted me. What did that mean? Do you know that it's really hard to be in love with someone when you're spending all your time trying to impress them? Make them proud. Make them like you. Do enough to gain their approval. I had no idea that the dutiful zeal imprinted on my soul from the religion of my childhood was actually keeping me at the center of my world, that my obsession to get it right was sabotaging my capacity to see and know God for who he was. The self at the center of my religion was hiding the glory of God like a solar eclipse of the sun. That changed in my 40s. (laughs) And in looking back, I just think God decided it was time to put me out of my misery. (laughs) And I would have prepared for it, but it came on so gradually that I hardly noticed until I was in really deep waters. The simple truth was that I began to see Jesus in a different way, in the way that revivalist A.W. Tozer always called the transcendent other the majestic king, the creator of all, the Lord of the universe. And it isn't that I hadn't known these things, but this was different. It was almost as if I was being swallowed by a reality so incomprehensible, so consuming that all I could do was stand still and let it happen. But as Jesus grew grander and more glorious in my spiritual vision, I grew smaller and smaller, and all the things I thought I was doing to commend myself to him seemed insignificant, like feathers in the wind. 
I was shocked by the truth that God didn't need me at all, that he could manage this world just fine without my litany of labor in his name. For me, this became a crisis of faith. For though I hadn't known it, my love for Jesus and my service in his name had been tainted by a strain of duty, co-opted by a sense of religious obligation and responsibility, and if I'm really honest, a healthy dose of pride. I began to see that falling in love with Jesus for me had meant doing what I could to make myself worthy of his love. And herein was my dilemma. In the light of his glorious infinitude, what could I bring to him? How could I measure up or satisfy this God who is before all things, who holds the world together by his power and needed nothing from me? What could I offer this God? And so I was depressed and lost like a ship adrift at sea. One night, I surprised myself and just hurled the whole thing at Joe. We'd been talking about it. He knew I was struggling. But that night, I said, I don't know what to do. God doesn't need me, and I don't know what to do. And Joe just, at that moment, got right to the root of it and just said, well, that's just it. You can't do anything, can you? I did not like that answer. (laughs) I wanted a list. I wanted a to-do. I wanted to know what I could earn, how I could make this better. And he just kind of shrugged and smiled, and I went to bed really miserable, and I woke up even more miserable. (laughs) And I went to my quiet time, and I told God the same thing I had told Joe. And in my spiritual vision... There began to be a scene, and it was as real as if I were watching a movie on a TV. And it was a scene of a fire. And everything I had ever done for Jesus was being put into that fire. All the classes I'd taught, all the messages I'd given. By then, I'd written books. The books were in there. The worship I'd led, the the discipling I'd done. It was just burning and burning and burning. And I watched this, and I just wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I thought it was never going to end. And then finally, it was nothing left but ashes. And I said to God, is there anything left? And out of those ashes came this beautiful, beautiful word, grace. And God spoke. And he said, Tricia, I've always worked in spite of you, and I always will. (laughs) It's a strange thing to say, I know, but God knew just what I needed. That though he'd never needed my work for him, out of the fullness of his grace, he had been there all along, walking with me, loving me, and letting me get in on his purposes for his world. I was undone, and I tried to explain it to Joe, and he said to me, Tricia, God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And 
And that, for me, is the essence of grace. That this transcendent other, the God of all, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, who holds the worlds together, wants me, with all my religious zeal, with all my arrogant attempts to impress him and other people, with all my attempts to make myself worthy, he just wants me. He shattered me completely with this soon after at a retreat. I was speaking at a lot of retreats then, and this retreat happened to be a smaller number of women, and I was feeling pretty good about myself that I was willing to go to this little retreat and speak. And um, and when I got there, uh, they met me, and they told me that I'd be staying in the dorm with the women, and normally they have a room for your retreat speakers, and so I'm thinking, plastic mattresses, yeah, oh, great. And then they said, and by the way, we don't need you to talk on Saturday night because we have been praying for these women, and we're going to do communion and share with them what God has told us. So they left, and I found a hallway to sit in, and I, was, I knew my heart was not in a good place. And I just began to talk to the Lord about it. I began to try to figure out, I said, why am I here, God? Because my Saturday night talk, it was really the best one. And I'm like, what did you bring me here if I'm not even going to get to share that great talk you gave me? And as I was sitting there, a song that had been playing in our worship for the last couple of months came to mind, just the chorus of it, and it went like this. It's all about you, Jesus, and all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your ways. And I surrendered. And that weekend, I was undone the whole weekend. And when they did communion, and they prayed over me too, God spoke to me. He said, Trisha, I can do more in one moment of communion than you can do in a thousand talks. It's not about you. It's about me. And then he called me to write a book. <laughs> I wrote this book. It's out of print. It's called At the Name of Jesus. And uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done because he asked me to take myself out of the equation, which is almost impossible to do. Actually, it is impossible to do, but he wanted me to try. And I wrote of it in the introduction. I want to read just a little bit for, to you. There was a different Jesus. Somewhere along the way, the exalted Christ, the self-existent one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, hijacked my heart and set me on a course of discovery that has been both wonderful and disconcerting. The challenge to write of this Jesus seemed at first insurmountable, for in gentleness he'd revealed how I placed myself at the center of even my loftiest thoughts of him. To my dismay, I realized that the Jesus I knew so well had been crafted not through the grid of who he was, but of what he's done for me, about how he feels about me, what he wants from me, why I matter to him, and so on. But there was a different Jesus. The exalted Christ beckoned from afar, enticing me with his transcendent beauty, 
until I knew that I must leave myself behind if I wanted to find him in truth. Feeling at times like a dinghy thrust into a vast, unfamiliar sea, I tossed to and fro, crying out continually, Who are you? And why do you do the things you do? My quest was nothing less than an encounter with the glorified Christ, the eternal other who dwells in unfathomable mystery. And that's how I fell in love with Jesus. When I did, everything changed. I remember that season so well. I would, uh, Joe would go to work, and the kids would go to school, and I would lock the doors and shut the blinds, and I would put on the blurring worship music. And this Baptist woman would dance around the house for the glory of God. <laughs> Serving Jesus was no longer work for me. Doing the things Jesus called me to do was no longer a way to earn my keep or make him happy. The love that filled my heart then drove me in all the ways that my keenest efforts never had. I began today saying there were two phrases from that passage. The first is, I have seen his glory, and I have seen his glory, just Jesus. Jesus was the perfect manifestation of the glory of God. The glory of God is all that he is, everything that he is. And Jesus came and showed us what it looked like. And he was the most beautiful human being that's ever walked this earth. Yes, he is the transcendent other. He is the Lord of glory, the one with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. But he's kind, and he's gentle, and he's patient, and he's loving, there's never been anyone like Jesus. He shines with a radiance that can be blinding and welcoming at the same time. He listens with tenderness, and then he speaks, sometimes in crashing thunder and sometimes more often in little whispers to our soul. Jesus loves with reckless abandon, and he never takes stock of the risks when he does. He can baffle me at times still, and he can amuse me. He can confuse me, but he never, ever bores me. I have seen his glory. Jesus, just Jesus. The second phrase is, from his fullness, I've received grace upon grace. I want to tell you two things about this. The first one is total opposite to the way I envision my life from the time I was a little girl, and it was simply this. Jesus, the lover of my soul, had been the one pursuing me all along. When that five-year-old girl loved that song, The Old Rugged Cross, that was Jesus putting his love for his sacrifice in my heart. All the good decisions I'd made, all the hard work, everything I'd ever done to be more committed to him, that was him giving me grace, and calling me to be with him. It was all, always him. 1 John 4.10 says it, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son 
And then in verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. He is always the pursuer. He is first always. You are here today, not because you made a decision to come to church. Because on your own, you never would have. But the grace of God drew you here to this place. He is after you. (laughs) Jesus was after me like a suitor who wouldn't be denied his love, and he was never going to stop. He was even willing to let me think I was the one doing the chasing. When in reality, it was him. I couldn't have got away if I tried. Because it is from his fullness that we receive grace upon grace, it has to be him pursuing us. And also, he is always the giver. From his fullness we receive, and that means we can never pay him back. I hope you aren't living to pay Jesus back because it's a losing game. No matter what you give him, he will always outgive you. All we can do then is come to him every day with open hands and receive from his fullness, grace upon grace. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? And then Romans 11 and 12, last week Robert explained to us that the Bible got verses and chapters I think it was in the 15th century. So up until that point, it didn't have them. And sometimes the people who assigned them kind of got it wrong, in in my opinion, which is probably wrong. But Romans 11 and 12 have to go together. We all quote all the time Romans 12 about presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. That's our spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to the world. But we've missed Romans 11 before that. And Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible didn't get it wrong. He put it together, and I want to read it to you now. In Romans 11, it starts with 33, and it'll be up on the screen. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God, this deep, deep wisdom? It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory. Always praise. Yes, yes, yes. And then chapter 12. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Do you get that? Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. God is always the giver. And when from his fullness we receive grace, this fuels our service. This fuels our work. This fuels our love for him, our everyday walking around life, and turns it into worship. And that brings him glory. Let me just end with this. Uh, In the religion of my childhood, I heard a lot about the terrors of hell and the rewards of heaven. 
And I would hear that verse, well done, good and faithful servant, and I would see it as a sort of pat on the back moment when God would tell me, good job for all the hard work I'd done. But now I have a different vision. And it comes from the second part of that verse where he says, enter into the joy of your master. I think of that moment when it will be his joy to give me a crown for the things he's given me the grace to do. But it'll be my joy to lay that crown down at his feet. I live for that moment, and every day I live for the pleasure of God, not something I earn but something he just wants me to experience out of the fullness of his grace. His pleasure has become the elixir of my life, and it's the single most driving factor in my love affair with Jesus. Are you in love with Jesus? I know many of you are. I've talked with you. I also know there's some of you here who are like I was, You're trying hard to get the job done. And your spiritual life feels a little like a roller coaster. You feel good when you get the job done well. And you feel pretty shamed when you don't do very well. Wouldn't you love to be relieved of that burden once and for all? A grander vision of Jesus is what you need. Some of you... Love Jesus like I loved Jesus, but you haven't experienced being in love with him, where he consumes your thoughts, your heart, your mind, brings you to tears. And you've known there's something missing, but you haven't known what to do about it. And I have to say, I can't really tell you what to do about that, but I can tell you this. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And maybe he just wants you to sit with that for a little while. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. Just close your eyes here for a few minutes.